John 12, and I'll read verses 46 through 48. I have come as a light into the world, that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray now that you would open our ears to hear it and to understand it. We give you thanks in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. I think we all know that in order to be our Savior, Jesus had to be sinless. And so another way that we think of that is that Jesus was perfect. And so in his sinless perfection, he was our Savior. Yet, I think for many of us, appreciating sinless perfection is best done at a distance. In his own home, he was not appreciated. Uh, If you flip back just a few chapters to John 7, I'll read starting at verse 1. Now, he is just becoming popular. He's just fed these 5,000 people, and so obviously he has developed quite a following and quite a reputation. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret, while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to this feast. I am not going up yet to this feast. So his own brothers essentially were taunting him with his popularity. If you think you're so special, why don't you go off to Judea where all these people want to see you? Now, I think we should explore what life must have been like in Christ's home for these brothers. Don't you? I mean, here we are so ready to judge them for being harsh and cruel towards him, but he was part of a big family. And uh, in Mark 6, starting at verse 1 again, we read, Then he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended by him. See, I just wanted to share with you that he had four brothers by name. They're named here. He had at least two sisters. It just mentions sisters. So he was from what then may have been a reasonably sized family. Now we would think of it as a fairly large family, seven children. We know he was half-brother to all of these brothers and sisters because they didn't share the same father. He was the eldest, and what is very, very likely is that his stepfather, uh, Joseph, is no more. He's probably passed away sometime between the time that he was left behind in Jerusalem when he was 12 and now when he's beginning his ministry at 30, 31 years old. Now, as the head of the home, he is perfect. So his brothers had the pleasure of growing up with a man leading their home that was perfect. With a mother who really did understand that because we don't know how much she may have shared with her children about his miraculous birth, right? We don't know. That would be very difficult to bring up for your children. Yet, we know Mary was not sinless, as is thought by some. She was 
sinful. Godly, yes. You know, chosen as this vessel, yes. But yet still sin-filled. So did she ever in these young boys' youth say, why can't you be more like Jesus? He's perfect. They had to deal with that. They grew up with an elder brother that was perfect, and that was probably their mother's favorite, I would presume. So we got to cut them some slack, I believe. They had it rough. It reminds me of uh, a movie. I was told that I hadn't referenced a movie in recent weeks, and so I felt I should do that. (laughs) I've come to be relied upon for that. But there are these two brothers in While You Were Sleeping... And the one is falling for the girl that is supposedly the fiancé of the one that's in the coma. And he's there at the... It's very well done. It's Bill Pullman, and he's the brother, and he's falling in love with this girl. And he's there at the, at the uh, uh, hospital room, and he's talking to his brother in the coma. And he's saying, you know, when we were little, and my teachers... I would be hauled up before my teachers, and they'd say, why can't you be more like Peter? He said, you know... I didn't mind that. He said, I was proud of you. I never envied you until now. So he's falling for this girl that he thinks is the fiancé of his brother, and he's jealous now of him. But he admits that in their youth, oh, yeah, I was always being compared to you. I was being compared to my brothers. Not, well, I I was in their wake. They left a lot of destruction in their wake. They were not good boys in school. They were very, very bad boys in school. And so I think I've shared with you before that I didn't have it easy. My teachers hated me from the first time they called roll call. Swab. Oh. I had your brothers. Yeah, it's nice to see you. Now, he had it uh, difficult himself, Jesus did, being perfect. And yet, he's God's son. He's come to this realization as he's grown. And so he comes to know who he is. And now his ministry is becoming extremely popular. And they resent him for it. His own brothers resent him. And in three of the Gospels, all the Synoptic Gospels, uh, there is this story where Jesus is incredibly popular. And now, He is being told in the midst of while he's speaking, your mother and your brothers are here. They want to talk to you. And then he says, you know, who are my mother and my brothers? These that do my will. It's never mentioned that he goes to talk to them. This reminds me of another movie. If you're familiar with Beauty and the Beast and the dad, Belle's father, when he comes back from having seen the beast and he runs into the pub and he's doing this, and then shortly after, you have a man come to the door. I've come to collect your father. I think his brothers might think he's crazy. He needs to be reined in from whatever is going on with this man. His mother and his brothers have come to talk some sense into him because this is getting out of hand. Because, see, they're caught up in this too. This isn't just Jesus. It's his family. They don't like it. These brothers already have expressed resentment at him for this. They don't like the fact that they're along for the ride. They are identified with him, and they can't avoid that. Now, there was other resentments. And here again in Mark 6, where I'd read that, and it said, is not this the carpenter? So they were offended at him. These are people that he grew up with. They're in the synagogue. Earlier, a few months earlier, they had tried to kill him in his hometown. Remember that? When he had stood up to read in the synagogue, and he read from the uh, gospel of Isaiah, or the uh, the prophet Isaiah, and said, this day, this is fulfilled in your hearing, and he sat down. They'd heard that he'd been performing these miracles, and he said, you will now tell me, physician, you know, do what you're doing here over there, but I tell you, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country, and they tried to throw him off a cliff. These are the people he grew up with. These are people he worked as a carpenter for, so he did not have anybody to go back to. This was not a temporary thing Jesus was involved in. He was burning all of his boats, all of his bridges. He couldn't go back to Nazareth. They didn't like him. He had worn out his welcome in Nazareth, not only with the people of Nazareth, but with his own family. 
His own brothers really hated him. And so is true, familiarity breeds contempt. His neighbors had contempt for him. His family had contempt for him. And yet, he was perfect. And in part, that's why. Now, Jesus is our Savior. He is our perfect example. God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he may be the firstborn among many brethren. So see, we follow in Christ's wake. And yet, we're not perfect. Sometimes I wonder whether people hate us more because we're not perfect or because we think we're perfect or because we are pursuing perfection. I don't know. But somewhere along that spectrum, people choose to hate us because we identify with Christ, because we follow in his steps. And it is our destiny. In Colossians 3.10, Paul said, put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. We are told emulate Christ. And also he said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 3 this, 2 Corinthians 3 starting at 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So if you're his child, you are becoming like him. That's God's intention for you, and the more that happens, the more you will be despised like he was. So we are to consciously emulate him. And so to do that, now there are many ways in which we are to emulate Christ, and I'm just going to mention a few. There are four, actually, that I want to draw out. Four character traits of Christ that we are to emulate. First, compassion. We are to exercise compassion like Christ did. Second, he exhibited grief. And I'll give you an illustration of that. Third, he exhibited righteous anger. And so, very human emotion. And fourth, he exhibited courage. Now, this obviously isn't a physical courage, a a warrior courage, but it is courage to go up to battle the enemy. And so, yes, he had physical courage. In many ways, that's what's required in order to battle anybody, anything. You require courage. So, I'm going to give some examples of each of these. First, the perfect compassion of Christ. One thing, I've I've been reading a book recently or or listening to it, I forget which, I'm listening to it, and uh, it's about politics around the 1850s that kind of led to the formation of the Republican Party and eventually uh, Abraham Lincoln becoming president. And uh, what I have come to a greater understanding of is this, Uh, politicians haven't really changed. I mean, since the 1850s, they haven't really changed. And I'm not even poking fun at them. I really, I'm really not. I have come to a deeper understanding of how they do what they do, what they're doing, why they want to do it. They have to be very tough people. They go out into hostile cry, uh, crowds day after day after day, any one of them, heckling them, ignoring them, booing them, criticizing them. They have to overcome that every day get back up on that stump and start doing it all over again. Now, some of them do it simply for the glory, I agree. They just want the celebrity and power that comes with politics. But yet, some of them are doing it, and they're believers. And so they're enduring a lot of this, hopefully not for their own sakes, not for their own goals. They're enduring it for the greater good. So I have developed at least some respect and admiration for what it is that they can do in order to remain in politics. It's hard. And what I believe they most benefit by is being perceived as compassionate. This hasn't changed. It was the same in the 1850s. As I'm listening to all these stump speeches, it's amazing to me how it hasn't changed. It's still all about compassion. If the politician makes you believe that he's for you, you vote for him. It's just that simple. They seduce you. I remember reading after Clinton's success at the first... uh, Uh, president election, I I remember reading Primary Colors, and it was a book written about uh, his uh, coming into the presidency. It was written by someone on his staff at the time that was anonymous. Later, it came to be revealed who it was. But that was the thing that this person really brought out in that book, was just how 
seductive politics is. It's all about seduction. It's all about making you believe things. Now, here we have Jesus who is genuinely compassionate and moved for people. And you know that at the height of his popularity, they wanted to make him king. We'll throw those other bums out. We want you to be our leader. Why is that? Because he was compassionate. And it wasn't just a lie. He wasn't promising them compassion next year or if I win. He's giving them compassion now. He's healing them. He's teaching them. He's leading them. So see, this is just a wonderful illustration of how natural it is for people like that to enter into politics. And yet, that's why he had to restrain that popularity for as long as he did. Because he had to restrain these people from attempting to make him king by force to mount this rebellion for his sake. So now, there are many examples of Christ's compassion. I want to give three. In Matthew 9.36, we read this. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. That is a general statement that then talks about how he taught and preached and healed and fed these people that were with him. He had compassion on them. And then in uh, Mark 1, I want to read, starting at verse 40, Now a leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling down to him, and saying to him, If you are willing, you can make me clean. You see how Mark wrote that? Now a leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling down to him, and saying to him, it was all about Christ. You know, people say that Matthew and Mark uh, are the same books, that they're copied. Oh, it's such balderdash. When you look at how Mark draws out the humanity of Christ, and Matthew chooses not to, it's just amazing. It's just the words that were chosen are very, very precise. And so here... Jesus is confronted by this leper. If you're willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. As soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And he strictly warned him and sent him away at once. And he said, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, offer your cleansing. However, he went out and began to proclaim it freely. Once, I remember years ago, trying to figure out, okay, there's a secret here. Sometimes Jesus says, tell people. Sometimes he says not to tell people. What is the secret? There's some secret meaning here. There's got to be. And so I'm trying to solve it like a riddle, like I always do. But then I thought, well, you know what the answer to the riddle is? In one instance, Jesus didn't want the word being spread. And in other instances, he did. (laughs) I'm amazing. I solved the riddle. It's just, I can't tell you how I would pursue this deeper meaning. I mean, if, if, if I'd lived way back when, I may have become a Gnostic because they were into the secret meaning of things, the numerologists, you know, numbers, meaning this and that. But see, it's just the simple truth. Jesus didn't want the word to get out at that point, but this man was so excited. And see, he was a leper, and lepers were anathema to the Jews, Lepers were untouchables, just like the ones now in India. They were untouchable, and rightfully so, because they're unclean. They're beneath us. So, see, you could ignore them. They're like nobodies. They're like nothing. They're not even human. They're subhuman. You just ignore them. And yet this man came pleading with Christ, and he had compassion. So the third example is from Matthew. Matthew 23, 37, we read this. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. And so this is where then he says, uh, essentially, you are going to be condemned for this. But it's the compassion here that he's being moved by when he wants to gather them like a hen gathers her chicks So see, that's compassion, and the Gospels are just filled with examples of Christ's compassion. I can't go on. It would would consume the sermon. The second point I wanted to express was the grief of Jesus, and let us turn to John 11. In John 11, starting at verse 3, and I'll read up to 7, we read this. 
Therefore, the sisters sent to him, Lazarus is sick. The sisters sent to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. What it says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard, he stayed two more days. Because he loved them, he chose not to go when they came to get him. He waited for two days, and it was because he loved them that he waited. It's so counterintuitive because he wanted to demonstrate what was going to happen to them. He wanted there to be no doubt in their minds when he raised Lazarus from the dead, and that's why he waited, because of his love for them. And then we get to verse 32, and it says, Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in his spirit and was troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Uh, this is what some say is the shortest verse in the Bible. It's only these nine letters. Jesus wept. Uh, I had a friend... When I just came into the Reformed faith, I had been a newbie Christian for only like a year and a half when I became Reformed, and a friend of mine, his license plate out in California was a vanity plate, he, space, wept, he wept. And I asked him about it, and he'd said, you know, well, it's from John 11.35, but he didn't like the fact that he had that plate anymore. He'd gotten it, but then he had to keep explaining it to everybody because he couldn't fit Jesus wept on the plate because you can only have seven characters plus a half space. And so he, had, he went to he wept, but then it's like, well, who wept? You know, what is this about? And then he's a Marine, so he's driving on the base, and all these people are driving past this thing, he wept. And, and he was actually a highly decorated Vietnam veteran. So, I mean, he probably relished opportunities to talk to Marines about it, but yet he gave up on it. It's just too difficult. But in this context here, Jesus wept. He expressed his grief. And what is it that made him cry? I don't think it was just this episode here. He's crying for everybody that grieves over death. I mean, Jesus identified with humanity. So he groans in this text twice. One of these deep groans that only the spirit, you know, is, is reflecting the reality. He just can't uh, even speak words at this point because it's affecting him so much. So now we've got him uh, being compassionate, expressing grief, and now we have anger. But before we go to anger, I wanted to mention uh, human anger because uh, I think James covers this really well in James 1, and I'm going to read from the NIV. I think it's just much more clear here. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. So James is very, very clear here. He says, human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Now, James here, of course, is speaking of us in our human fallen state. And so our anger is almost always self-oriented. We're angry for our glory, for the fact that people are taking advantage of us. People are cheating me. I'm angry because of this. Whereas Christ's anger is poured out for a different reason. His anger was other-oriented. And the first instance is from John 2. I have two instances. John 2, verses 13 to 17. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the money changers' tables and overturned them. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. So sometimes you think, wow, I mean, how could Jesus have done this? This is at least rude. Isn't rudeness a sin? I guess not. It's okay to be rude sometimes. Jesus did it. 
Now I can do it, right? Yeah, yeah, I can be as rude as I want to be. No, he's cleansing his father's house. He was upset for his father's glory. We so often are upset only because something has touched us, our inner third rail, that we want to kill people because they touched it. That's when we get angry. We don't get angry for God. We are so far from doing that. We are so far from God. We might get perturbed for God. Let's do that. Let's get perturbed for God today. But when you get angry, it's visceral. You're in your gut. You're angry about something that touches you. I don't know that we can grow in our godliness on this earth to where we're truly angry for God's honor and his sake. I don't know. But yet James appears to say no. So that's the reason I brought up James. Christ's anger was different because he was sinless. So now, that is the uh, first of the anger. And the second one I wanted to share was from Mark 3. So in Mark 3, starting at verse uh, 1, and he entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. So they watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. Then he said to them, as he's looking around at them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. What wusses. And when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored as like the other. So see, he was angry with these Scribes and Pharisees that are standing around. And look at the next verse. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. And you know the Pharisees and the Herodians did not see eye to eye, but they saw eye to eye about this. They wanted him out of the way. Now, the next uh, attribute, character trait, is uh, courage. And I want to speak about uh, his courage in the context of him being an iconoclast. Anybody know what iconoclast means? Phil's nodding. Not if you know what an iconoclast is. If you're firm in your convictions as to what an iconoclast is. Do you want to be an iconoclast? Yes, you do want to be an iconoclast. Because I already said Jesus was, right? You want to be everything Jesus was, don't you? I already told you you have to be, so you might as well get with the program. So see, you are to be an iconoclast. This is a picture that my, uh, uh, our v- AVP drove drove. Drew for me, a bunch of us, but I asked the question, and he got a little perturbed with me. And I was asking about some aspect of this program we were working on, you know, but isn't it going to be difficult? Isn't this person or that person going to complain? Because we're kind of ruffling feathers. And he drew this picture on the board. Can you kind of make out the picture? The picture is the black part, and then there's, of course, the universal red circle that means no. So see, that's a cow. I think it's a really cool-looking cow. It's a cow with a halo on his head. That's a sacred cow. <laughs> he drew that sacred cow, and then he drew this circle, and he drew a line through it. And he said, no sacred cows. Now, of course, at the time, if we'd had the relationship that we have now with our Indian coding partners, I don't think he'd have drawn that picture. <laughs> but at the time, we had just a few Indian programmers. Now we have armies of Indian programmers. But... Uh, They, of course, are the whole genesis of the sacred cow thing. But see, no sacred cow means destroy it. If it isn't right, if it isn't righteous, if it isn't a good thing, it deserves to be destroyed. And that's where Jesus was preeminent in attacking. And so many aspects capture this, but let me speak to just a couple. Having meals with tax collectors in their homes... I mean, everybody despised the tax collectors. It was easy to despise the tax collectors. It would be like him having dinner with an IRS agent now, you know? Some, some leader of the BATF. Ooh, I hate those people. Oh, Jesus is having dinner with them tonight. You want to go? You know, we can tell Jesus what we think of him for eating and dining with people like that. They're not one of us. So see, he was willing to do that. These enemies of the state even. These tax collectors, they were like friends of the Greeks and the Romans. And yet, he identified with them. He would go have meals with them. He didn't didn't view this sacred cow of Jewish life to be avoided. He took it on. Prostitutes, you know, eating and drinking with prostitutes. When when, uh, 
Mary is washing his feet. And the man is thinking to himself, if he knew what type of woman that was, he wouldn't allow this. And then Jesus talks to him. He knows exactly what is in the man's mind. You did not offer to wash my feet when I came in, but this girl has not ceased to wash my feet with her tears since I came in. This will be spoken of her. My favorite in this regard is John 4. And I'm not going to read it. It takes up pretty much the whole chapter. But this is the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. And so Jesus is traveling with some of his uh, disciples, and they leave him at the well. They go off to seek food and bring it back. And then he basically asked this woman for water. We can run past this, but I know we've talked about it in the past, but there are three things here that Jesus is doing that are iconoclastic acts. He's destroying sacred cows. First, he is speaking to a Samaritan, and Jews don't speak to Samaritans. Samaritans are beneath them and had been for a thousand years, a thousand years ago, the Samaritans had set up those, those uh, calves. Jeroboam had set up those golden calves and separated themselves from the true believers. And yet here he is talking to one, just unheard of. It's a woman. It's a woman. He is talking to a woman in public, and he is a great teacher of Israel. Unheard of. Unheard of for these teachers to speak with women. Women don't do this. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, nowadays we've got lots of women in politics, but back in the 1850s, this book I'm reading spoke of how rare it was for women to be in politics, but yet some of the early Republican rallies were attended by a lot of women. So you're in good stead there, Jennifer. The women have been involved in politics since the founding of the Republican Party in the 1850s. But see, in Christ's day, oh, he was just way out of the bounds by doing that. And then two, we know that she was not a very godly woman, was she? She was a very wicked woman. He said, go get your husband. She says, I have no husband. He says, yes, I know. You've had four husbands, but the man you're living with now is not your husband. I perceive that you are a prophet, sir. <laughs> Why, yes, I am. So see, I mean, he was breaking through all of these social taboos to reach out to these people. And his apostles were aghast at this. They are in no place to rebuke him, but they're thinking to themselves, how could he be doing this? This is just wrong. Isn't someone going to stop this craziness? Now, there's one more trait that I want to cover, a fifth trait, but I can't cover it right now. I need to cover something else. So now, uh, I began with a text, and you probably think, how on earth does this relate to that? But it does, and it's uh, John 12, starting at verse 46. I have come as a light into the world, that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. There are four statements here that I want to kind of draw out and repeat again. If anyone does not believe, I do not judge him. I did not come to judge, but to save. He who rejects me has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken, that will judge him. So see, if we're to emulate Jesus, we need to understand what he's saying, why he's saying it. So is Jesus the judge or is he not the judge? Here he seems to be saying he's not a judge. But in John 5.22, he said this, The Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. So yes, he is the judge. Jesus is the judge. He is the judge of all the earth. But how do we reconcile the verses? But see, you have to listen. I do not judge him. I did not come to judge, but to save. He's not saying he's not a judge. He's just saying, I'm not going to judge him. I'm not here to judge him. That's not my role right now. So he's not denying he's a judge. He actually confirms he's a judge. What in what I read confirms that Jesus is the judge? Not in the, the 522, but in the other verse. 
in verse 48. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. Jesus is the word. His word is the judge. Jesus is the judge. So see, we know Jesus is the judge. His word is the judge, and he is the word. But he tells us he has not come in that capacity this day. We know Jesus is prophet, priest, and king, right? Prophet, priest, king. Which one judges? Too often the priest. But it's the king that carries the sword. It's the king that judges. And Jesus is not exercising his kingship here. He's exercising his priesthood. So he is speaking to them as a priest. He is interceding for them as a priest. And he is not bringing judgment upon them at all. As Jesus lived, he did not bring judgment upon these people he's preaching to. Now, I clarified with uh, Scott earlier whether there is a, an official term for a lawyer. You know how kind of like there's a term for doctor, and it's called doctor. You know, doctor. You know, they get a PhD, and then they're doctor, MD, doctor. And they're all doctors. And then when you go into the service, and you're an officer in the service, you have titles. You have these ranks, you know, captain, major, general. Um, there was a man, again in this book that I'm reading about Illinois politics, there was a man by the name of William Bissell. He, had, uh, he was actually two years younger than Lincoln. He had trained as a doctor. He became a doctor. He was known as Dr. Bissell. He then became a lawyer, and he entered into politics, and he became a state representative. And so then I would assume that's your honorable. And uh, then he entered into the Mexican War, and he became a colonel. So then he was colonel. So he's essentially your honorable Dr. Colonel Bissell. And this has an advantage in politics. It really does. Because if you're in a veterans organization, what title are you going to use to introduce him? Not doctor. Not your honorable. Colonel. Colonel Bissell, welcome to the podium. If you're at some, you know, uh, hospital making a speech, what are you going to use? Your honorable? Colonel? No. Dr. Bissell. So he was extremely popular in politics in this day. And... Uh, reason I bring this up is that these titles are important. These titles have significance. You can use them to your advantage. And poor lawyers, you know, they really don't get a title, you know. They, they, there is no title. They, they could call them counselor or, you know, barrister in England. But, you know, nothing as common as doctor or the officers uh, or like your honorable, you know, senator. Uh, but uh, anyway, the reason I bring that up, though, is that this is another thing that we must realize, is that these titles come with roles and responsibilities. So, for instance, we have these. There's father, there's husband, there's mother, there's wife, there's teacher. Each of these comes with different roles and responsibilities. So, all I'm clarifying is that what Jesus was exercising when he came to exercise salvation is he was saving us in the role of our priest. He was interceding on our behalf. He did not come to judge anybody. The word was already out there. The word would already judge. Now, the one trait that we still must cover is we've already covered compassion, grief, anger, and courage. But the title of this message is Jesus was intolerant. And so that's the trait I want to focus on now. But first, I want to ask you two questions and think about this. Of what was Jesus intolerant? And a second question that's reasonable is, are we to emulate him in this? We can't emulate him in everything, but are we to emulate in him in his intolerance? And let me give you two examples. One I actually already covered because it also deals with anger, and that is in Mark chapter 3. In Mark chapter 3, and he entered the synagogue again, <clears throat> and a man was there who had a withered hand. So they watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. In the, in the parallel references, you can see he has him come forward. I mean, he's putting on a demonstration. Jesus wants no misunderstanding about the fact that he is going to heal this man on the Sabbath right in their faces. He draws their attention to it. Step forward. Then he said to them, all these people that are looking on, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. And when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he 
he said to them, stretch out your hand, and he healed him. Anger and grief, he experiences both simultaneously. And he is intolerant of the way they're acting. He takes them to task for it. The second one is, and, and you know, make no mistake, the very next thing says, they immediately plotted with the Herodians how they might destroy him. Not denounce him, not diminish him, not embarrass him, destroy him. They want him destroyed. Why? He broke their rules, and he accused them of abusing their authority. For both of these, he had to die. Uh, there is a societal proverb that says, go along to get along. And uh, I, meant to, I wanted to ask the Anders, but I see they're not here, so I'm going to use the story. But uh, uh, Steve, I don't think Steve would mind. He shared it uh, Thursday when we were over at his house for Thanksgiving. And he said that uh, he was in the Air Force, and he was made a security officer, and yet he was stationed in, I believe, Fresno or Modesto, and they would load a bus up with these airmen, security guards, and they would send them out to wherever there were like uh, civilian rallies to try to keep the peace, to drag the soldiers and the civilians away from one another because this was the height of Vietnam and the, the civilians were often attacking uh, returning soldiers. So he made the mistake, though, of commenting critically on how they went about doing this. They're on this big bus. They give them all big sticks. None of them had guns. The only guy that had a gun was their leader, their fearless leader, that was way in the back. This little tiny master sergeant was way in the back with an automatic weapon. And he said, why are you placing the man with the weapon behind us? We want him out here. Well, for his cheek, he got to guard a crashed plane out in the Mojave Desert for a week. I mean, they just took him out there, dropped him off with a canteen, and said, we'll be back. And so after seven days, when they came back and got him, he was a humbled man. He was ready to not criticize the way they were taking them out to these events, going along to get along. He had made the mistake of forgetting that little principle, and yet they reminded him of its existence. So see, this is the thing that we're all encouraged to do, go along to get along. Uh, there is another illustration of Christ's intolerance, and this begins at the end of Matthew 22. Uh, the very last verse of Matthew 22, we've just had the Pharisees and then the Sadducees attempt to throw him off. The one with the question about the coin, uh, about, and then the second with the question about the marrying and giving in marriage. He had silenced them both. And 2246 in Matthew says this, and no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him any further. Now, did Jesus do like many Republican candidates do, do now when they get into office and they win? They just don't do anything. They don't now stand up for what they said they stood up for before when they were running for the election. What does Jesus do differently? In Matthew 23, he specifically attacks them. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, seven times. He is capitalizing on their silence. If they're not going to debate him anymore in the public arena, he's ready to take them down. Now, of course, this all gets turned around and he dies and all that, but we know that was all part of the plan. He is in their face. They can't stand it. They can't stand this man who has broken their rules and accused them of abusing their authority. So now, he was and is a savior and a judge, and we are to emulate him in both these roles. We do not save, but we do point to the savior, and we do have a role in judging, and I believe we get these confused a lot. This is the whole purpose of this message, to differentiate between how we represent Christ as a savior and how we represent Christ as a judge. 1 Corinthians 5 Paul makes this abundantly clear, and I, and I want us to go there if you can. In 1 Corinthians 5, now in my Bible here, I have a really simple Bible, and it doesn't have these headings, but in the New King James Version of the Bible that applies headings, there are two headings in my Bible. And the first one, now uh, 1 Corinthians 5 is only 13 verses long, but the first section from 1 to 8 is entitled, immorality defiles the church. That's the first eight verses. The second section says 
immorality must be judged. Immorality defiles the church. Immorality must be judged. And so, see, this has to do with our roles as judges within the church. It all has to do with that. And let me read this. I mean, this is very telling. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you. For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. That is judgment. And that is what the church exercises on this earth. We judge sin. We judge people who say they're in the church but behave as if they're not. And yet I want to read the next portion, starting at verse 9. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourself the evil person. He very clearly tells us where the border of our judging ends, and that's at the door of the church. We are to judge within the church. God gives us that right and responsibility. But yet, when we're dealing with the worldly, the extortioners, the covetous, the idolaters, we don't judge them. God does. What do we do? Or what do we not do? Last week, we talked about the beauty of the Ten Commandments, the ingenuity that God had in designing the Ten Commandments as he did. And I told Gary at the end of last week's sermon, I said, you know, I'm tempted. The first thing to say this week is, forget everything I said last week. Because in some ways you must to extend the mercy of God to the lost in this world. You can't be judging them by the law. We know they're sinners. We know that. They know that. They don't need to have their noses rubbed in it, really. But if, to, if you can minister the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, then these people respond. They know that they're sinful. They don't need to be reminded of it. So, see, we know the law is made for godly people, just as our Constitution was made for godly people. We know now that we live in the midst of an ungodly people, and our Constitution is breaking down. It's not to say that we shouldn't attempt to bolster it, to defend it, to promote it, to, to uh, educate people on it. Yet we recognize that in part it's been lost already because the hearts were lost. When the hearts were lost the love of the law was lost. So see, this unjust society rebels against law, rebels, and will suffer the penalties. And we are part and parcel with that. We're caught up in this civil, civic community that we're part of. So we want to do the right thing. We want our society to be just. So we fight for it, as we should. We fight not only for our sakes, for the sakes of these people that oppose us. We fight for the sakes of our children and grandchildren, their children and grandchildren. So see, we fight for what is good, but yet we can't be bringing the battering ram that we want to bring to justice against people and their lives, and that's what we tend to do. We just tend to forget that to these individuals we must extend mercy. We must preach to them. So see... This today, this message, uh, ends this whole series on Christian materialism. We live in a material world, and that's what I wanted to try to emphasize during these messages. Our challenge is to not be seduced by it, to not give in to it. We must oppose it. That's our role. And yet, we are to pursue both the dominion mandate, which in many ways 
is dependent upon God's law because it will break down. Our ability to fulfill the mandate breaks down in the midst of lawlessness. God knows this. And so God has prepared for this. And yet the Great Commission is given to us also to minister grace to people. And so as we minister grace, we then draw people into a deeper understanding of who God is, what their role on life is. Once they're in the doors, we judge them. That's our job. Some Christians don't like that. You're not the judge of me. <laughs> you say. God says I am. That's why I'm an elder in this church, to help be the judge. God has placed me here for this purpose. I judge myself. I judge my family. I judge all of you. And we are all judges of one another. But we also judge with grace, don't we? 90% of the sins we commit are to be overlooked. It's only when it gets excessive. It's only when people begin to kick against God's word with force that people must be reminded that they're Christians, that they're not to fight against God. We're here because we love God. We want to serve God. So see, both of these, our administering of justice and our administering of grace, both of these require God's leading, His blessing, His grace, His mercy. They're equally applicable in our society in different ways, though, at different times. So, as we minister the grace of God to the lost, I want you to think of yourself as like a battlefield medic. You're not really concerned with why they took the bullet, with why they took the mortar round. Could have been self-inflicted, who knows? But you're just there to patch them up. You're just there to keep them from dying, get them on the right way. That's really more who we are in this world. We're ministering God's grace to people that are hurting and need it. And so they don't need lectures more often than they just need love and they need a friend. So let's, uh, let's close in prayer and I thank you for your attention. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel of grace and for the ways, the many ways in which you are tolerant of us. Uh, even as your children, you tolerate so much sin in us. Uh, you do not disown us when it would be uh, understandable if you would. But Lord, we do pray that you would have us to be uh, loving and encouraging uh, to everyone. Uh, to not be the judge of those outside the church, as Paul instructs us in 1 Corinthians 5, and that we leave judgment to you. We thank you, Father, for all of your blessings in our world. Uh, we thank you for what you have given us in this nation. And you know that we are very sad uh, to see what has been lost. Yet we pray, Father, that you would have us to recognize the difference between uh, justice and mercy, between judging and forgiving, uh, between the ministering of your grace and the ministering of your law. And we ask you now, Father, to glorify yourself. Uh, use us uh, to serve you in this world. Uh, we pray, Father, we give you all the thanks and the glory. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that ministers in us and through us. And we thank you for your Son that sacrificed all for our, uh, on our behalf. And we pray, too, Lord, uh, that you would make us perfect. Uh, have us to truly seek to be and to own what it means to be the uh, younger brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus. Uh, we want to identify with him, Lord, and so we ask you to make us like him. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.